Welcome to a bonus edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed. You're speaking not to a crowd of people in a theater. You're, you're now more intimate than ever. You're just speaking to one person, listening to you, reading. And I tried to treat reading like that, just giving the information that the author has given me, just literally whispering it into the microphone, knowing that only one person can hear it. And that's a joy. That's actor, singer, and narrator Jim Dale. Jim came to audiobooks quite accidentally and rather later in his career. And we're so lucky he did. Jim has narrated about 40 audiobooks, and they are real beauties. He's done all seven of the Harry Potter books, classic works like Peter Pan and A Christmas Carol, New takes on the classics like The Beast's Heart, Think Beauty and the Beast, Spin, the Rumpelstiltskin musical, and Puss in Boots. And he's become the voice of a new series based on Peter Pan called Peter and the Star Catchers. That's just a taste of some of the audiobooks that he's done. In the 20-something years he's been narrating, Jim Dale has won some 10 Audi Awards, two Grammy Awards, 23 Earphone Awards from Audiophile Magazine, who has also named him a Golden Voice, and he was awarded the MBE from the Queen of England for his work in children's literature. If Jim had only narrated audiobooks, he would have had an enviable career. But Jim's career embraced all aspects of the entertainment world. He's a great man of the theater, performing in plays from The Taming of the Shrew to Joe Egg to Scapino. He's also a tremendous musical performer, taking the stage in Candide, Three Penny Opera, and wowing everyone, including me, in Barnum, for which he won a Tony Award, the second of his five Drama Desk Awards, and the second of his five Outer Critics Awards. Jim Dale was also a successful pop singer, one of the first signed by George Martin of Beatles fame. George Martin is the guy who produced all of the Beatles records. And Jim wrote the lyrics to the Oscar-nominated song, Georgie Girl. Maybe because I had seen him in Barnum, I had assumed Jim Dale began his career as a song and dance man. I was wrong. I started as a, as, as a comedian, not a comedian, a, a young man trying to make people laugh when I was nine years of age in the various talent shows that I did in our local community. Uh, and after six or seven years of, uh, of training to be a dancer, I then uh, decided to be a stand-up comedian at the age of 17 and a half. I, I entered a music hall, which was still going in those days. It died out in the 1960s, but for a hundred and 50 years, it had been the principal form of theatrical entertainment for working-class Brits. It was a family, family-oriented, and that's where I learned my trade. That's where I learned to tell jokes that were not dirty or did no crude language in it. And you had to be funny in those days for that audience to laugh at you, and that's where I think I got most of my training. You worked with Laurence Olivier, and he invited you to join the National Theatre. Yes, Larry saw, sorry, La, uh, Lawrence Olivier saw me playing the various uh, 
Shakespeare's clowns in and around the Edinburgh Festival and uh, on, in the West End of London. And he finally approached me and said, we have a play at the National Theatre which needs an actor who can talk to the audience. It's called The National Health by Peter Nichols, who went on to write wonderful plays like uh, Joe Egg. And so Larry invited me to the National Theatre, and I, I stayed there a couple of years sharing a dressing room with Derek Jacobi and Jeremy Brett, and I did a two-hander play with Anthony Hopkins, and I was on stage with Paul Schofield, and then Joan Plowright in Merchant of Venice with Larry himself playing Shylock, and uh, I played Lancelot Robbo. So it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. All right, so extraordinary career that continues in various fields. How then did you get into the audiobook biz, where you are one of the shining lights there as well? Uh, that, that was an accident, a sheer accident. They were looking for someone with an English accent to be the narrator, and someone said to whoever it was at the uh, at the publishing company, they said, "Well, there's a." A guy called Jim Dale, he's, off, he's playing off-Broadway at the moment with three other men in a play called Travels with My Aunt. One of the men doesn't speak at all, so three of them are now doing 33 characters between them. And, of course, the publishers said, wow, that sounds fantastic. That's the sort of guy we need. So they approached me, asked me if I'd read the book, which I did. I loved it. They said, would you like to record it? I said, yes. And it was only after I'd signed the contract that one of them said to me, well, how many characters did you play in the play? And I remember saying, just the aunt and the nephew. The other two guys played 31 characters between them. So there was a shock silence on the end of the phone because they realized they'd signed someone who may be unable to do any more than a couple of voices. And the book we're talking about is Harry Potter. That's correct. There were seven of them, as you know. And so I didn't realize that the first book had, a, I think it was 34 different speaking characters, but that was nothing compared to the final book, which had 147 different characters that needed a voice. So that was quite a challenge. Well, it's, it's like your first run being a marathon. <laughs> yes, that's correct. Vernon Dursley, Harry's uncle, suddenly spoke. Glad to see the boys stop trying to butt in. Where is he, anyway? I don't know, said Aunt Petunia unconcernedly. Not in the house. Uncle Vernon grunted. Watching the news, he said scathingly. I'd like to know what he's really up to. As if a normal boy cares what's on the news. Dudley hasn't got a clue what's going on. Doubt he knows who the Prime Minister is, anyway. It's not as if there'd be anything about his lot on our news. Vernon, shush, said Aunt Petunia. The window's open. I know you've been asked this before, but it still bears repeating how you created those voices. You read the book. How did you internalize those different voices? Well, I, I remembered voices from the past, voices that I'd heard other characters doing, maybe... Uh, maybe radio comedians in the old days, they used to have very distinctive voices. So uh, uh, one of my favorite character voices from the whole series was Dod Dobby, Dobby the house elf. I remember I heard that shy little voice when I entered the, uh, a big department store at Christmas. It was really packed and the elevator came up from the basement and the doors opened up and we all backed into it. And then the doors closed and in the silence going up, 
I heard a little voice, a sad little voice behind me say, Excuse me, sir, can you take your bum out of my face? And I tried to turn around and there was this little fella wedged up against me and I said, I, I do, I do apologise. And I thought, I'm, I'm never going to forget that voice. And of course, 30 years later, I was able to incorporate it in the character of Dobby, memorable voice. Well, it's also keeping all those voices straight over the course of seven books that got continuously longer as the series progressed. Yes. That's another feat. It's one thing creating it, which is extraordinary, but then... To remember a character's voice from the third book that you are now going to have to recreate on the seventh book. I don't have much time to read the book. I, I, I'm given the book, and for the last book, for instance book seven, it was so urgent that they only gave me 100 pages at a time. And then I would recall the 100 pages, then they'd give me another 100 pages. So I had no idea where the storyline was going, whether my character, this character was going to be a villain or a goodie. I had no idea. So it was, it was very, very tough to uh, keep track of all the voices. And the way I did it was quite simply, as I invented the voice, I would read the sentence that that character speaks into a small tape recorder and say, page 48, uh, Dumbledore, uh, line 23. And so that gave me some idea. When we came to it in the script, I would stop and say, let me just listen to the tape recording of what I did at that particular moment when I was creating them. And uh, it would give me an idea of what that first sentence sounded like, and uh, I'd be able to recreate that voice. You know, it's, it's really kind of amazing because being somebody who likes to prepare, I felt compelled to listen to some of Harry Potter again, and I literally could not stop listening. And it's not like I haven't heard you narrate the books before. Oh. I'm listening to book five specifically. But boy, the world that you create with your voice. I wish I could say I agree, but to be perfectly honest, Joe, I've, I've never heard myself in any of the 40 audiobooks that I've made. I don't want to hear myself because I'd want to do it again. Because in films and television, you're allowed to do take three, four, five, take 50 if necessary. But in narration, it's just take one. And so you have, to, you have to just keep talking until you make a mistake. So I learned a lesson very early as to if I wanted to do that sentence again, I would just swear, and that have, they'd have to stop the tape recording. And I remember them so often saying, oh, Jim, don't keep swearing, because we'll have to do that again. And I'd say, thank you, that's what I'd like to do. I can polish it up now. So I've never heard I've never heard a Harry Potter book, but uh, I'm very pleased with the reaction of those who have. What was the hardest thing to get used to when you got into that audio booth and started narrating, as opposed to being on stage or in front of a camera? I suppose on stage you can add to the actual character that the playwright wrote words for by f physical movement, by expression on one's face. All that adds to the 100% character that you're trying to create. But in narration, you really have to keep your hands in your pockets. You can't go twirling your arms around to indicate that's what your character would do. 
people are listening to this. So everything that has to come out through the voice, every type of expression and emotion has to be created by your vocal cords. And they become the most important thing that you have to offer, those vocal cords. So you have to treat them as if they were, and they are, the most precious things that you have as a narrator. I remember the first day I had to record Hagrid, and I recorded him as a gravelly old man, old, old giant and within 10 minutes I'd lost my voice the, what happened then was we had to stop recording we had to cancel the rest of the recording session had to pay the assistants and the ed editors who were there for the day it cost a lot of money to make a silly stupid mistake like that so any gravelly voice has to be one that you can sustain but so don't put too much into it or you'll just lose your voice as I did and I also wonder the difference as well between theater that's so collaborative. So it's not just a physicality, but you can play off somebody. Whereas in the booth, it's you, the text, the microphone. Absolutely. I think the experience I gained as a young stand-up comedian helped considerably. I was able to communicate with an audience at the age of 17, 18, 19, and uh, acquire some sort of something that took me into acting. I had the ability to listen. I li used to listen to the audience reaction to every word that I said, and uh, I would balance my act listening to the way they were behaving. And the same goes once you get on stage, it, working with another actor. Uh, listening is the greatest thing you can offer that actor. Giving is the greatest thing you can do on stage. And uh, I learned from the greatest. I learned from the, the Laurence Olivier's and the Paul Schofield's and the Derek Jacobis. And uh, just watching people like that and the way they listen on stage and the way they give to fellow actors, and it's, it, it bounces off onto you. And so there's nothing I love more than being on stage giving. I just adore more than anything being a theater actor. I could have gone on to live in Los Angeles and become a television person or a film actor. Um, as it is, I've just spent most of my career in the theater in close proximity to a real live audience, which is the biggest joy ever to hear seven or eight or nine hundred people sharing the moments that you're sharing with them and hearing the laughter from uh, such a large crowd. As someone once said, if there's anything better than laughter, let me know. Well, comedy is, many actors say, the hardest thing to do on a stage. Would you agree with that? Yes, I, I think you should have a, com a comedic DNA, something comedic in your DNA, because many straight actors, dramatic actors, one thing they'd love to do is to just make people laugh. But it is very, very difficult if you do not have that instinctive comedic talent. I've seen so many big names trying to be funny and they don't come over as being anything but uh, over the top in the way they're behaving or acting. Just too confident in the, in the ability they think they have in making people laugh that they just die a death. One has to have that inborn talent, I think, to amuse, as Coward Noah Coward would have said. And uh, thank God I was born with it. But that came about because of the parents who are there or should be there to encourage you to do with your life what the heck you want to do with it. Just do it. It's your life. 
they'll bring you up, they'll pay for your schooling, they'll give you the food, but it's up to you then to go out and be who you are. And you have that. Yes, and they taught me to fail. My father said, you know, you can only fail, Jim. Just get up and brush yourself down and start all over again. The poet, Christopher Logue, I, I go along with the poem that he wrote, and I, I sort of live by it. When Christopher Lowe said, uh, Apollinaire said, come to the edge. It's too high. Come to the edge. We might fall. Oh, come to the edge. And they came, and he pushed them, and they flew. Lovely. Isn't it? And they flew. Wow. What is it Einstein said? Fail better. <laughs> try, fail, try again, fail better. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> well, what attracts you then to narrating audiobooks? Because it's, a, it's the same as in a theater. People say, why do you prefer these small 60-seater theater, 90-seater theater? It's because I'm in such close proximity to my audience. I want to be able to look everybody in the eye. To have that audience, every one of them think that many times during that evening, Jim was actually talking to me, or it felt like it. And, of course, that applies in a narration. You're speaking not to a crowd of people in a theater. You, you're now more intimate than ever. You're just speaking to one person, listening to you, reading. And I tried to treat reading like that, it just giving the information that the author has given me, just literally whispering it into the microphone, knowing that only one person can hear it. And that's a joy. For instance, my grandson Alfie, when he was a little boy, used to go to bed with, uh, with a tape recorder and listen to the tapes of Harry Potter. And one day, unbeknown to him, my, my son took out the Harry Potter tape and put in a tape of me, his grandfather, saying goodnight, Alfie, in the voices of all the main characters in the Harry Potter books. And so the story goes that they sent Alfie to bed. And my, my son said, lights out in five minutes. And they stood waiting at the door, and they suddenly heard this terrified voice shouting out, they're talking to me, they're talking to me. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> I thought my I nearly gave a, a heart attack to a seven-year-old kid. Oh, boy. Well, yeah, it's so real. Harry led them all back into the kitchen where, laughing and chattering, they settled on chairs. Kingsley, I thought you were looking after the muggle prime minister, he called across the room. He can get along without me for one night, said Kingsley. You're more important. Harry! Guess what, said Tonks from her perch on top of the washing machine, and she wiggled her left hand at him. A ring glittered there. You got married, Harry yelped, looking from her to Lupin. I'm sorry you couldn't be there, Harry. It was very quiet. That's brilliant. Congrat. All right, all right, we'll have time for a cosy catch-up later, roared Moody over the hubbub, and silence fell in the kitchen. How do you choose what to narrate? I'm very lucky in the fact that the, whoever sends them to me, I think they've had a think as to who could do the best job on this. And uh, the selection of, of books that have, have been sent to me, I don't think I've turned, I've only turned one down in, in the last 40 books. 
so that's not bad. I just read the book and see what I can contribute to it. I want an audiobook that is a challenge to me when, when I first read it, and the last 40 books have been a challenge. You focus in your audiobook narration a lot on fantasy or children's books. Why that particular niche for you? Oh, I think because the various different characters in fantasy can have an extra, extraordinary, unusual voice. As against in a, in a thriller, everybody talks in a normal voice and they can put different levels or emotions into that voice. But when you have to create a voice for a snake or, <laughs> or a spider or a giant or crazy characters that J.K. Rowling wrote words for... Then you can use your voice to, 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 in all different ways and have a crazy time doing it. So many times we've had to stop recording because I burst out laughing after hearing these strange voices that are coming out of me. That's the joy, I think, for children's books. The fact is that there are wonderful, extreme voices that you can use, and uh, I, I loved every minute of it. You recently did a really enchanting Puss in Boots with a full cast, which was also a full-on musical. That was one of the very first musicals that's ever been made for an audiobook audience. The first one was Rumpelstiltskin, and uh, the second one was Puss in Boots. And, of course, that was a joy to do because uh, I didn't have to sing. I didn't have to memorize the words or memorize the music. Wonderful actors uh, contributed towards the actual uh, dialogue in the piece. And I came in at the very end listening to all of this and interspersing my voice in between the songs or the dialogue. And it was a joy for a change, you know, not being responsible for the, the, the finished product, not 100% as you are in a, a one-man audio book. And this was a joy to listen to younger actors and younger singers having a ball and uh, I believe it's won an award already, or one or two awards, and uh, I'm thrilled that I was asked to do it. I look forward to when they write another one. I'll be there. Well, a book that, that's quite different that you've also done recently, which has such tragic aspects to it, is The Beast's Heart. Oh, yes. That was very, very interesting. Beauty and the Beast, as seen through the eyes of the Beast. And it was very interesting to, to play that part uh, because it, it didn't bring in extreme voices like uh, the normal children's book. This was very few voices, but they had to be very sincere voices. And, of course, one had to play the, girl, the girls and the women with utmost sincerity. And uh, I'm, I'm thrilled that people are, are pleased with it. The first moment I felt as though I was awake in all those years was the first time I saw Isabeau, standing in a fall of golden light, hesitating on my doorstep in her poor patched gown. The sun flooded in, spilling across the flagstones and lighting up the very air around her. It was too bright for me. Her radiance dazzled my sleep-blighted eyes, and I crept away to hide. It was just a very unusual book. Other people have told me, I've never heard it, as, as you know, but they've told me that they enjoyed it so very much, and I'm thrilled.
That leads me to my next question, which is pacing, because you're not just creating characters. It's your voice that is driving the pace of the way we hear this book. That's correct, yes. And the pacing for The Beast's Heart is quite different from Puss in Boots, for example. Yes, yes. Because when when people read lines in the script, you can, if you just read the line, start at the beginning and end within a few seconds. But if you explore that one sentence, you'll realize that there can be a pause after that third word there. There can be a pause, just a little pause, after that eighth word there, and then a longer one before you hit that final word. In other words, you're, you're speaking that those words as if they were coming out of your mind for the very first time, and you're not quite sure which word is you're going to use next, and then you make a decision and you choose a certain word. So, yes, there's a lot of extra work for the narrator, but it's so rewarding when you finally get it right. So I'm, I'm so thrilled that it, was, it really was something very different for me. Well, you recorded the original Peter Pan by J.M. Barry, and you're recording the series Peter and the Star Catchers by Dave Barry and Ridley Pearson. Yes, I love them, yes. I'm interested in having you compare what it's like recording the two of them. Well, it was a wonderful idea of who was Peter Pan before he became Peter Pan. And so Dave Barry and Ridley Pearson asked me to, if I would be interested in recording a series of books that they were going to do. And uh, I, I read them and I thought they were absolutely brilliant, just as interesting and just as rewarding to, to record as the original Peter Pan Beautiful dialogue from, from Dave Barry, a wonderful comedic sense. I adore his work. So um, Peter Pan is a complicated story to read. You have so many different characters in there. And, uh, of course, <laughs> you can really lose your voice once you get into those pirate scenes. But I'm just trying to put it in my head. I've never talked about this before. The writing is very close to the original, which I thought was wonderful. Because it wasn't as if suddenly there's a new writer and it, it stood out so distinctly different, you know, the, the words and the, the way it rolled along. It was very similar to the original. Peter looked down the wharf and saw a much nicer-looking and bigger ship painted a shiny black. Its crew wore uniforms, unlike that of the Neverland. It too was being loaded and seemed ready to set sail. If it came down to choosing between the two ships... It don't matter! said Gremkin brightly, his mood improving. Swim, sink, or float. The sharks will take care of all you boys before you get a chance to drown. Sharks, said James. Big fish with lots of teeth, said Tubby Ted. They eat people. What if there's no people in the sea, said Thomas. What do the sharks eat then? Whales, said Tubby Ted. But they like people better, and there's plenty of people in the sea. Ships is always going down. I heard about one. Oh! That's enough of your jabber, said Gremkin, who had a rule against too much jabber. Sometimes you do readings of the books that you've narrated. You've done it with Harry Potter. You've done it with Peter Pan. That must be a lovely combination of performing to an audience, but doing it with these wonderful books, with this great narration. Uh, yes, it is. And uh, 
one of one of the biggest compliments I've had in in my career as a narrator was when a young seven or eight year old kid came up to me afterwards and he said, "Mr. Dale, you sound just like those characters." And I said, "Wow, that is the best compliment anybody has ever paid me." In other words, he heard the characters in his head. Then he listened to the audiobooks, and all the characters matched up to the ones he had visualized. I thought that was fantastic. But then again, people begin to recognize your voice when you're out. I, my lovely wife Julie and I went into one of the Dunkin' Donuts or McDonald's something just for a, a coffee, and we were standing talking, and I realized two young boys, eight or nine years of age, were staring, goggle-eyed, goggle-eyed at me. I said, hello. He said, are you, are you, are you here? I said, yes, yes, Jim Dale. He said, oh, can you order me a hamburger like Dumbledore? And, he, <laughs> and the other one said, can you order mine like Dobby? And I did. It was wonderful. Loved it. You were awarded the MBE, which is a member of the Order of the British Empire, for your services to children's literature, which has to be gratifying. Yes, it is. It's wonderful. Couldn't believe it when it was offered. It was very lovely. No, it's nice to be recognized like that, you know, and to meet the Queen and say hello to her. In fact, uh, <laughs> tell you a funny story, if I may. Um, the, your relatives are allowed to come along, and my son and my one of my sons and my wife came along, and they're sitting in the audience. I, was, I walked over to the Queen, and excuse the impression, but she said, what did you win this award for? And I said, for, for creating all the voices in the Harry Potter books, ma'am. She said, oh, how many voices? I said, 147. She went, <laughs> And my son in the audience went, yes! Dad made her laugh in less than 10 seconds. <laughs> That's a great story. Isn't it? So, yes, it was lovely being, being given an award like that. All awards are lovely, but eventually, you know, they just get put on a shelf or they get put in a closet. I remember going to Laurence Olivier's house. There was a closet door open, and there, lying on its side with a bit of green mold on its head, was the Academy Award he won for um, Richard III or Hamlet, whichever it was. Hamlet. Yes, but that's what awards do. They're lovely to look at, but, uh, you know, just put them on the shelf. You were in a terrific one-man show called Just Jim Dale, which was about you and your life. But I wonder if you've ever thought about writing a memoir and, of course, recording it as an audiobook. Ah, uh, well, that was nice, yes. And it's taken me years to write an audiobook, but I've got 150 different stories of, of the last 65 years, you know, not only just about show business, but about my life, about... Not necessarily um, complicated about family issues and all that, because I really wrote an audiobook for my grandchildren and their grandchildren and their grandchildren, hopefully. So these 150 stories have to be selected and, uh, and made into an audiobook one day, which I hope to do. And uh, from then we'll publish it. But uh, until then, I'm going to pick out the best ones and make another one-man show out of them. That would be fun. Well, Jim, thank you for giving me your time. I so appreciate it. Not at all. Thank you, Joe. It's been a joy talking to you. That's actor and one of Audiophile's golden voices, Jim Dale. You can find reviews for all of Jim's great narrations, including the Harry Potter series, Peter and the Star Catcher, and Puss in Boots, among many others, at audiophilemagazine.com. 
and subscribe to Behind the Mic wherever you get your podcasts. And then leave us a rating on Apple because it really helps people to find us. This has been a bonus edition of Behind the Mic. I'm Joe Reed. Good listening.